Because no race has the last word on culture and on civilization. They do not know what we are capable of. They do not know what we are thinking. They are thinking in terms of dreadnoughts, battleships, aeroplanes, submarines. You know what we are thinking about? That is our own private business. You are listening to The Brown CEO. You are listening to The Brown CEO. I'm your host, Selma Idris. Follow the conversation every week as I speak to some of the dopest minds from around the planet about what's broken and how we're going to fix it. This is The Conversation Between Us, every Tuesday. Yalla, let's go. Hello and welcome to episode five of The Brown CEO. I welcome today Dr. John Johnson, PhD, Assistant Professor of History at St. Peter's University in Jersey City. He's also a graduate of Rutgers University and proud graduate of what I've learned to be called the Hive, St. Benedict's Prep. Welcome, John. Um, I invited John today to talk about the conditioning, um, the formal education that begins at daycare and culminates with professorships, published works, and authorship of the new messaging, uh, the common sense that we all share. Uh, Last week, we had a conversation about the message, advertising, and the power of advertising and controlling the message. Now we're going to talk about that more formal education that we have, that conditioning, again, that I said, from the time we enter daycare, from the time we culminate our careers as professors and authors of the new information and the new age. Um, And I thought it would be a what better to have to have join us than a professor of history, um, of U.S. history, world history, um, and African American history? Mm-hmm. So, welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you uh, for joining us today. All of us, I think, have heard, um, especially the uh, speaking from my my perspective as a as a diaspora citizen, is education is the key. You know, to break out of your current situation to excel, to um, have upward mobility, the key is to get a proper education. Um, And in light of uh, Trump burning scientific papers, in light of people actively working to get folks written out of history books, um, I wanted to talk to you um, and get your thoughts on how you feel about the current state of history um, and the education and teaching of history um, in America to our kids? Hmm. Well, that's a hell of a question. Um, And there are different ways of looking at it. Um, uh, As a professor of history, we can look at the academy and the, uh, to say it's, stated bluntly the problems we're having uh, with the humanities writ large um, because of the economic downturns of 2008. So many more people are going into uh, business business and the sciences and are moving away from the humanities because they don't pay well, mm-hmm. or so people believe. Uh, and so um, as a field of, uh, as a discipline, um, we're seeing a lot fewer students uh, becoming history majors, going into English, going into the humanities writ large. And that's that's a that's a that can lead to a whole host of problems, which we can definitely talk about, uh, just in terms of understanding what history is, how history is created, um, having a better understanding of humanity, hence the humanities. Uh, we can talk about that uh, in terms of um, 
public education and uh, the the learning of history, say through primary and secondary school, um, we're seeing now um, debates over what is valid history and what can be considered history. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, one area that we can look at is the uh, area of um, textbooks. You know, who controls what is going to be placed in textbooks and um, places like Texas where uh, they buy the most textbooks. Whatever is bought in Texas generally sets the tone for what we're going to see in the country. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, investment in making sure that what goes into those textbooks is factually correct and uh, ensuring that we don't call, say, uh, Africans who were enslaved immigrants, right? In the mm -hmm. sense of we think of uh, voluntary immigration, right? Um, in the last year, interestingly enough, we've seen um, people, I think, coming to grips with uh, the legacies of, say, slavery and racism in America. And so uh, some of the uh, things that are being placed in textbooks are a little bit more um, accurate in terms of including the full breadth of um, individuals' history. Mm -hmm. uh, which is great, um, but we're still seeing generally, um, and just in terms of popular dialogue and what comes, say, out of the mouth of the president and various other politicians, um, you know, white man's history um, mm -hmm. that really doesn't take into consideration the full breadth of the American experience. Um, and uh, why is that? Like, what? How does that? So we're talking about the textbooks in Texas. Right. And this is where the textbooks are written that go out to the majority of schools. And this is where schools and school districts buy their textbooks from these main companies that are publishing in Texas. So how does that information get in there? Like, how do we uh, tracking back and we say we want, you know, a, a whole history that's mm -hmm. inclusive of everything and everybody um, and the real history. How do how does that information get in that textbook? Like who is responsible? What is the trickle down if we go back? Well, part of that has to do with the um, motivations of the publishers and uh, the scholars who they are tapping to work on those books. Um, invariably, a number of these textbooks are written by doctors of history, um, and uh, it, it's a question of who are the people that are writing them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I'll be honest with you, I'm not exactly sure how they select those individuals. What I can speak to, though, is that at least on the local level, what are the, what is the intention of each school district and what is their what are their purposes? Um, Every teacher is taxed, uh, taxed more and more to teach from the textbook. Uh, they have mm -hmm. to, uh, as we've moved towards standardized testing, uh, there are certain requirements that are, that are, you know, each school district has to roll out. And so um, I think it's a question of what happens at the local level. In New Jersey, um, there was a commission passed called the Amistad Commission, and the purpose of, of that initiative was to ensure that when teaching history, it was inclusive of black history. Mm -hmm. And not, you know, just in February, right? But yeah. uh, as if you're going to talk about the writing of the Constitution, you have to talk about the debates over citizenship and whether and how slaves or Africans will be included in the count. If you're going to talk about, say, uh, the American economy in any kind of way, you have to talk about the myriad ways, not just African peoples picking cotton per se, but skilled laborers who are doing various tasks in cities like Charleston and Boston. And so you have to put, present the full scope of black history, not just as an add-on, but as a, um, as a thread through the entire narrative of American history. Um, not every school district rolls those things out. Mm -hmm. um, and even though uh, some school districts like Newark 
um, I believe Plainfield and a few others have taken on that task. Um, statewide, we have not seen all school districts get on board. And so part of it, um, I think the textbooks present a challenge in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. But I think the real key is to what are what, what is the teacher's investment? Um, when you put the teacher in front of the class and they have to meet uh, these particular goals in terms of content um, and skills, are they also pulling out primary sources that come from uh, a woman who uh, was just freed from slavery? Or are, you, are they coming from primary sources of a West Indian immigrant uh, in Harlem? You know, uh, what, what is the teacher's uh, goal? Not just the textbook and not just the, the district, but what is each teacher invested in? And that's, I think, where the, 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 that's where the challenge is. That's a lot of um, onus on the teacher, though, too, because then it, it goes down the education pipeline. It's like, what was the teacher taught? So, you know, like like you said, it's a, it's a local issue and, and what do they want to do and what do they want to accomplish? Who are they speaking to mm-hmm. and what are their intentions? Um, so it is it comes back down to parents. Exactly. Because you have to walk up to your school and say, this is what I want in the curriculum. Okay. Um, this is this is the kind of information I want in it. But it is difficult, I would think, as a teacher with limited resources already. Because we're talking about public schools, right? Because private schools, you can do what you want. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's if you have limited resources already, like you can't have, you don't have tissue, and then mm-hmm. these are the books passed down to you from Texas, mm-hmm. then the easiest thing to do is to, you know, follow the curriculum that goes page by page with the textbook that helps you help the kids pass the standardized test. Mm-hmm. So then I challenge you again to say these scholars you know, talking about, because I know you taught on the high school level, but you've also taught now at the university level, and you're teaching a lot of the African-American history to us, but also others. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, um, or how do we start to support an environment that imparts our history as part of the whole history from an upper up level down. Like, do you have control of your curriculum in a university classroom, or you're change where you're training the next educators and the next historians? Yes, yes. Um, I think <laughs> that maybe one of the last few things that uh, university professors have is that freedom to uh, control what kind of sources they bring to their classroom. And so, mm. um, my really? appro- I think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, think that's a good because I mean, uh, Dougie and I were talking about it on our way here, and that was one of her big questions. It's like, what kind of curriculum control do you really have? And mm-hmm. I think most of us that are not in academia don't know. Yeah, uh, you're expected. I mean, if you're teaching, say, um, a world perspectives class that covers, say, ancient history to the pre-modern age, and so um, you know, two thousand uh, before Common Era to say fourteen ninety two. Mm-hmm. Um, I can determine what areas I'm going to focus in on. The expectation is I'm going to touch on some major areas. And so if I'm going to talk about the Roman Empire, if I'm going to talk about Rome, I have to talk about uh, the Pax Romana and uh, Augustus Caesar and um, you know the spread of the Roman Empire. But in, within that, I can also talk about, uh, say, the various philosophers that uh, went to places like Egypt and learned. Um, I can talk about, uh, say... Um, uh, Augustine, who was uh, a Christian scholar who was from Northern Africa. Uh, and not that geography is the only thing that is important to note there, but he was part of what would become, you know, the Northern, uh, the, uh, uh, what would become uh, Northern Africa and would become part of the um, 
uh, Islamic empire uh, a little a few years later on, but he is a person of color, and I think it's important to note those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, when we get to say when we talk about um, the spreading of Christianity and the passing down of various uh, texts from the Roman Empire, it's important to note the role of the Islamic Empire in passing those things on. Whereas uh, in Europe, literacy pretty much was in the decline after the fall of Rome. Um, it was the Islamic Empire that preserved a lot of the texts, uh, provided commentary on them, uh, and, and in a lot of ways added their um, different spins on it uh, based on you know their experiences with trade and going to Asia, based on their experiences in Northern Africa. It's, I think it's important to include all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's the preparatory work, and there's extensive, and you know I have to do some additional readings, but um, every professor has that right right now to kind of determine what those things will be. And again, um, what I teach in set P- at St. Peter's may not be what somebody at, say, Liberty University teaches or somebody mm-hmm. at, um, you know, some other university teaches. And so uh, therein, again, it, it boils down to the individual. I think there the students have some power to say, hey, I am interested in this uh, and to pose questions. I think one of the other problems that we see is that, um, especially with history, is that it's really a passive um Exercise. At least people interpret it to be a passive exercise. No one comes in with a set of questions. Hmm. Um, they assume that history is just this static thing. This happened and that's it. But as we know, you know, and especially nowadays with uh, all of the uh, techno- technological advi- uh, devices that we have that record yeah. any and all perspectives, mm-hmm. there are different ways of seeing and understanding a particular event in history. And so one of the things that I encourage my students to always do is to pose questions. I'm not the final, you know, word on this particular thing. And it's just a question, it's a matter of asking the right question. And that can lead to a better understanding, a more full understanding of what occurred at any point in time. Um, Just a quick, uh, just to backtrack a little bit, to talk a little bit more about Rome. One of the issues that we see nowadays, and, um, and people are questioning this now, well, who are the Romans? Were they... White people? Yeah. Did they all have British accents and, you know, uh, you know, were they all in Gladiator? <laughs> or were they a diverse group of people? And um, there are a number of anthropologists, um, art historians even, who are looking at, say, the sculptures. And what they note is that over time, you know, these, st- these statues were painted, but over the years, the paint has withered away and fallen off. And so we assume that they were white, but in fact, there were you know, a bunch of different uh, skin tones, uh, people of different cultures and backgrounds that were in Rome. Uh, The British Broadcasting Company produced this real short cartoon a few years back that depicted uh, uh, an Ethiopian uh, gladiator in Britannia Mm. who was leading Roman forces to run out the, um, or to uh, essentially establish Roman authority in Britannia, Mm. what is now Britain. And people lost their minds. There can't be a black person there. Thank you, BBC, for rewriting history. But there is documented evidence from various Caesars, from various generals that state that there were people of color, even Ethiopians who served in the, uh, in the Roman armies and that traveled as far north as, as Britain. Um, and so part of that is posing the question, well, who were the Romans? Mm-hmm. And I mean, even if you just think about it on a, geogra- on a geological, geographical ra- rather, um, and even phenotypical um, uh, way, these were Mediterranean peoples, mm-hmm. which meant they were in the sun, 
Uh, chances are there were a good number of Semitic peoples there. I mean, there was con concentrated across the Mediterranean. Um, you know, Russell Crowe, great movie. I'm glad you got the Academy Award. But you didn't necessarily look like a Spaniard from that point, from that period of time. Um, chances are a person was a little probably more dark complective, olive toned even. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can kind of go down the, the list of things that, uh, the, the, the list of categories of a person, that how they may look. It was... Um, really a cosmopolitan society. Even if you look at the philosophies that permeated Rome at the time, uh, we think of Stoicism as this uh, thing that, rep that is representative of you know, austerity in a particular stance where one is upright and proper. But Zeno, who was the philosopher of Stoicism, one of the things he talked about was this idea of a, of a universal spirit, of a universal fire that permeated all things. Mm. Um, and this was locked in step with the, the shifts that we saw with the Roman Empire. As the empire grew, they began to take on the understandings and the trappings and the different practices of all the peoples in the Mediterranean world. Mm. That's not to say that Rome didn't have some of its flaws, at least in terms of, uh, you know, some of the seas were very oppressive. Um, there was, uh, you know, they wielded the sword. You know, there was the Pax Romana, which we think of as the Roman peace, but that was maintained through the army. Yeah. Um, and in a number of cases, they were uh, very punitive in their responses to, say, civil uprising. We just look at what happened in Jerusalem uh, with the Jews that revolted, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they basically wiped them out and destroyed the city, right? And so you can't ignore that fact. But at the same time, it's important to note that Rome was very much a cosmopolitan city and a civilization. Um, and in these interesting ways, um, I think is very reflective of, say, the diversity that we may see uh, in places like New York and Brooklyn now, and mm -hmm. that you had people trading from one end of the empire and bringing their cultural norms with them, and it was mixing all throughout the city. I mean, how the heck did Christianity become the major religion of the empire, yeah. if not for the, uh, the, the, the spreading of these ideas through the empire? I mean, mm -hmm. when something is good and people like it, they will adopt it. And I think the Romans did that. Um, they were people that... I think in a lot of ways uh, embraced uh, the, the the gifts that other peoples were able to bring to them. So, yeah, that's fascinating too, and the parallels too are are, are great mm -hmm. in that the diversity of the U.S. alone should show that it's it's not one peoples um, that that fuel an empire. Um, it's a diverse group of people, and that whole history needs to be included, mm -hmm. um, if not for people just to understand, you know their own humanness and involvement in humanity. Um, but there's this one quote that I loved when I was doing some reading for the episode, and it was, the only clue to what man can do is what man has done, right? Mm -hmm. History is for human self-knowledge. So like you said, it's not static. It's if we're going to understand sociology, psychology, um, how we're going to behave, behavioral patterns in, in, they employ a lot of historians and behavioral patterns in marketing, and in data research, you have to understand how man has behaved in the past. And to really understand that, you have to understand the whole picture. It can't be a farce. It can't be a lie. It can't be um, something that's not complete. Mm -hmm. And that's when we fall apart. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciated that. That was amazing, um, the education behind that. Now, um, what was something interesting that you had said was, you know, you have the, the choice um, to teach the curriculum, right? And you have students who choose to take your class. Like, 
this is, these are not mandatory. This isn't, you know, high school where you, you have to go through Dr. Johnson's class. Everybody has to take it. Who chooses to take your class? Who, what's your class made out of? Like, who's it made out of? Um, well, to, to clarify a few things, um, at St. Peter's and I think a few other universities, they have uh, core requirements, uh -huh. certain things that you have to take in order to graduate. And the Jesuits, uh, St. Peter's is a Jesuit institution. Uh, liberal arts education is a core aspect of that experience. And so um, every student has to take uh, at least two history courses. And I guess they have the uh, choice of whether they take it with me or one of my colleagues. And so, um, one, they have to take uh, world history, they have to take world perspectives, and they have to take the Western tradition. And uh, I have issues with that term, that title of the class. In a lot of ways in that class, I kind of push back at the idea of a Western tradition. But, um, you know, the students in my classroom, they're a diverse group. Um, St. Peter's as an institution is uh, majority people of color. Um, and I'm very mindful of that, and I try to... I try to include that or recognize that in my classroom, and so I try to teach history uh, from the ground up. Um, if you're familiar with Howard Zinn's A People's History, uh, I try to uh, present history in a way that um, explains hierarchy, right? Um, tries to, I try to basically, you know, I, I make sure that I touch on some of the things that students love. They love the gods. They love to learn about, you know, the Roman gods. If they're going to talk about... Um, Medieval Europe, they love to hear about knights and castles, uh, but I try to put it in a perspective of uh, power and, you know, how is power maintained? How do people contest for power? How do people challenge power? I try to uh, infuse that in my class. And um, I mean, it's an interesting thing. Again, I think students, they come to university with the expectation of getting a degree and leaving, and some may not appreciate history. They know, you know, why am I taking this course? And I ask them, like, why are you taking history? Aside from it being a core requirement. And I get various answers, some of which are the cliches. Well, if you don't know where you're from, you don't know where you're going. And I think that's valid, too. Mm -hmm. um, but I always also try to uh, bring across to them that, um, and I'm paraphrasing something that Baldwin says, but history is never past. Um, history is always present with us. And so uh, one of the things that I always try to help them see by the end of the course is that, you know, like some surf on a, on a, a manor in... France somewhere, a person, an individual is making a choice to work or not to work. An individual is making a choice to uh, flee that situation and find another means of taking care of themselves. And they all had a choice. And you all are historical actors. You all, at some point or another, chose to come to this university. At some point, you're going to choose to go into a particular career path. And your choices have impact. They make a difference. Um, and I try to help them realize that um, we're not just hapless victims of things. In, in a lot of ways, we all can participate and have a say-so in what happens. Um, again, a lot of students, I think, some think of history as a static thing, and they just take it for granted. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, let me just memorize this, throw back the dates, and that's it. But there's always the ability to question and to think of what could have been the alternative. Was it inevitable that uh, African peoples would be chosen to be enslaved? What if the Native Americans, the Arawaks and the such of the Tainos developed a resistance to the various European diseases and actually lived. Mm -hmm. um, what if Europeans, particularly the British, decided that we want to, you know, going to the New World isn't all that bad. You know what? You know, they, I hear all the bad stories, but let's go there anyway. 
and we don't see a drop off in the number of indentured servants coming to the Americas in the in the in the 1600s. How things might have been different, um, you know. I, I think history is contingent, and it's important to for students to recognize that. I think in a lot of ways they don't even think that our present moment is contingent. Everything is kind of in one track. What are we to do? Mm -hmm. um, but part of that is helping them recognize that just like you have to pose questions of history, you also have to pose questions of things that are going on now because there's always a choice. Do you feel like the now is a lot more awake than let's say when we were coming through school? Um, like the questions that you're posing, the what ifs, like what if the Native Americans formed a resistance? Do you feel like the current climate where everyone is a little bit more aware um, and there are, let's say, in entrepreneurship, you have the movements of more support Black-owned, we're more aware of where our products are coming from, you're seeing a lot more content in media that's more focused on, you know, our history, mm -hmm. um, presenting different ways of how history could have happened and probably happened. Um, do you feel that in your classroom with the, the students, that you, the new minds that you have in your training that are coming up? Um, it varies. Again, I think there are a number of students that do recognize it, that there are a lot of possibilities and that things aren't just rigid. And those tend to be the students that are constantly posing questions and answering questions and, you know, pushing me to, you know, expand my understanding of a particular thing and even forcing me to say, you know what, I don't know, but I need to look that up because mm -hmm. uh, that's a question I didn't even consider. Um, I, I think it varies in my classroom. Um does social media play a big part in your classroom? Like now that there's videos out there, like the zeitgeists and the this conspiracy and that conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do my best to uh, push students to challenge that. Um, I think Tanahasi Coates said uh, in one talk he gave that not all information is good information, mm -hmm. um, and so you have to be very careful about what you consume and where you're getting information from. Um, on the way over here, you know, just thinking about different things. And one uh, thing that I hear people, they were saying a lot last year and even the year before. I haven't heard as much of it now. I guess like anything in popular culture is kind of falling off, but the idea of being woke. And, you know, um, I gave a talk one year about um, uh, the Trump presidents, no, Black history in the aftermath of the Obama presidency. Mm -hmm. And I framed it that way because I kind of I didn't want to have the current president kind of as the, the center. I wanted to talk about more so the impact of a Barack Obama presidency and the symbolism, also the real the politics of it. Um, and to think about where do we go after this and not to have 45 at the center of that conversation. And um Shucks, I can't remember what the heck I said in the talk right now. But in the aftermath, Johnson's woke. Yo, he's woke. And the following year, I gave us a, a talk on, well, what is wokeness, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so much of it has to do with, I think, at least as people imagine it, this state of knowledge, this state of awareness. Um, and it almost seems like it's final, like there's no room for growth after that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I learned this yes. and I'm woke. Um, but the artist, uh, Georgia Ann Muldrow, she uh, was on the song with Erica Badu, mm -hmm. um, song called Master Teacher, and there's the refrain, I stay woke. And I found one, I know, an interview of hers, and what she said was that she had a problem with the song after it came out, partly because um, people just assume woke to be this one thing, but she always viewed it as just staying awake and working. Mm -hmm. And so woke, at, not necessarily as a status or attaining some level, 
but it's just a consistent process of staying awake and reading, staying awake and writing, staying awake and conversing and talking through things to get to a greater understanding of the world. And I think the process is what's important here. Um, you know, uh, history is is continuously being redefined. I mean, the only way I can have a job is I have to go into the archives and I have to discover new things. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm observing certain things in the world, I have to keep a certain eye that looks for something that is nuanced and different than what we've come to expect. And so that, and that's a continuous process. One, going back and reading the old stuff that people have written before, you know, the literature review and what have other scholars have, have what have they said? But now I have to add my two cents to it. I have to add my little new thing to it because it's never just this one thing. And I think that in and of itself becomes a powerful thing, mm-hmm. right? I think we've long thought that we're becoming more and more aware and conscious, but I think people have been aware and conscious for a long time. It's just we haven't been told those stories. Um, we just don't know in what ways have black people, people of color, oppressed people, how they've dealt with power. Mm-hmm. And because their stories for the longest have been relegated to you know memory and forgotten, we haven't had an opportunity to revisit and think about how people have preserved those stories of resistance, mm-hmm. uh, of entrepreneurship and, and cultivating brand and all those kinds of things that have given us a new platform to kind of exist in this world. And they've been there. It's just the role of the historian, um, and not just me, but other people too. I mean, the folks that are, the work that you're doing, I think you're unpacking and finding new things that are, are raising our levels of consciousness more and more. I think that's what becomes most important. And again, to kind of tie back to your initial question, for my students, I try to help them recognize that there's more to it here. You just have to go through the work of showing that, unearthing it. Um, I have a number of students who are going to be nurses. Um, they're in a nursing program. Um, it's not just enough to get that degree and to go into the medical profession, but you have to have an understanding of the populations that you're going to serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have an understanding of the demographic history. What are the things that are ailing them and how can you keep an open mind to serving them better, not just based on what the, the book says and what your board exams told you or expected you to know, but more so what are the various, how is the environment shaping the health of these individuals and how can you intervene to have better health outcomes for your patients. Um, but again, part of that is that woke process of going through the work to learn those particular things. And therein, tie back to the previous question, that's where history becomes all the more important. That's where the humanities become important mm-hmm. because you're constantly asking questions about the world in ways that other people may not. No, I was a sociology type, it was like a, it was a service learning major. So it was a lot of sociology classes and volunteer work. Mm-hmm. The history I received was through sociology courses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it bas- you basically just jumped from theorist to theorist to theorist. And I look at history through the theorists, but there wasn't, we as sociology teachers, they were always like, oh, you pick which one you align with almost. So I feel like I have such a skewed sense of history mm-hmm. and time. Part of that, though, I think you have to, remember how those theorists were responding to their times. And so, I mean, if you think of a guy like Emile Durkheim and, you know, what was, what was going on at his time? And I'm not very familiar with his, his writings beyond functionalism and, you know, how society is supposed to work. But his notions of um, uh, the, what is considered, I guess, uh, wrong and bad, and how that's actually a part of society and we create institutions to deal with those things. 
um, he's responding to things that are in his world. Marx is, is responding to industrialism and the, the problems of industrialism. And so and the, you can't necessarily divorce the, the theory from the history. I guess what becomes problematic is when teachers do that and it raises this question, can certain theories be applied to certain times? I think that's what has allowed Marxism to kind of be, you know, have a resurgence through the 60s and 70s and even rear his beautiful head now, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, in terms of it's been all about class. He's talked about history has been about competition and, you know, the forces, whether we're looking at ancient Rome and the plebeians and the patricians, the patricians being the high-ranking aristocrats who control everything, and the plebeians are the middle class, lower class folks who are just getting by. They fight in the armies and do all the dirty work while the other folks are sitting at home living large. And we see that throughout history, and damn it, we're seeing it right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of it is you have to ground the theory in the times. And when I do teach theory, um, I always make sure that I put it right in the moments, like what was going on in 1848 when they wrote the Communist Manifesto? Mm -hmm. uh, what was Adam Smith dealing with? You know, what was he looking at with the emergence of capitalism um, mm -hmm. and mercantilist trade? I mean, there was a slave trade going on. Yeah. And so that is a major part of his his theory, his thinking at that time. You can't divorce the two. Context is everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Context is everything. Very great point. You said you had a great question earlier. What was your question? My question is, as a history professor, how do you consume media? How do you do you, mm. how do you critically consume what you see on television, social media? Instagram videos? Mm, with a grain of salt, everything. Um, <laughs> and I guess I get, with anything else, you kind of compartmentalize, you know. Um, and it's, I can't even really, I mean, that's a hell of a question. Yeah. And I, I don't really actually think about it, just do it. It's a t-shirt. <laughs> you know, how do you, you consume? consume media. Um, I, I think I self-select because I'm very mindful of what I put into my, my spirit. Um, because in a lot of ways, I think things shape the ways in which you look at the world. As much as I'm trying to read things critically, they do have an impact. And so I'm very mindful that I can't necessarily listen to everything from the left or the center left. Because in a lot of ways, you know, it's very much skewed to, uh, I consider like ESPN politics. It's about the excitement and the argument as much, but they don't really talk about the substance of the issues and like what's going on at its core. And so I, I, I very, I'm very quick to like cut things off once it kind of gets into the realm of, oh, you're just trying to keep me in tune rather than enlighten me. Mm. Um, in terms of like things like Instagram and those kinds of things, not on Instagram much, on Twitter a lot. And I, I follow people that, you know, there's only but so much you can put into a, you know, a tweet. Uh, but I look for people, I look for things that, you know, I almost look at it as a, a puzzle of sorts. And so each thing kind of fills in one gap of a larger picture of what is going on at any particular moment. Like, I can't necessarily go to one thing and say that's it. I mean, to that point, you know, especially like uh, surround, you know, when looking at, say, the State of the Union address, and I'll tune in the Fox and I'll listen to what those pundits say. And interestingly enough, I can't remember the guy's name. As much as you would expect everyone to be railing against, uh, cheering for you know the president and railing against um, Stacey Abrams, there was one particular guy on there who's not black, who's a white guy, who actually said she actually got what Americans are going through. 
And it was like, oh, really? Hmm. That's peculiar. And it was a necessary exercise because, again, you just kind of lump everybody that's at Fo- in Fox in this one category. But there's one sole voice of, you know, somebody that was actually listening as opposed to just kind of approaching with their, you know, their preconceived thoughts. And um, for me, that's important because guess what? I have students who voted for Trump. And as a, as a teacher, I can't write them off. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, they have a right, like anybody else, to express their opinion. And while we may disagree, I still have to grade them just like I grade everybody else. Um, and recognize that they're dealing with stuff just like me. They're trying to sift through the weeds and kind of try to get to a, a greater truth. And so I, I try to... And I don't, <laughs> I'm very mindful of what I get from the right, too, because part of it's painful, too, because they're, they're saying things and doing things that are attacking me mm-hmm. and, you know, stabbing people like me and people that I love. And so I have to be, you know, I, I can only Im- indulge but so much. Yeah. Um, but I have to make sure that I keep my ear to it just so I hear what people are saying. And so when a student raises a point that, you know, the typical Fox News point, you know, my initial emotion reaction, like, oh, really? But I can't just totally discount it because I've heard it before. And if anything, it allows me to kind of think a little bit more about, well, how do I address this in, a, in, in an open conversation, in a classroom setting, on the train when I'm going to work or what have you, you know? Um, and so I try to indulge a lot of different things. I mean, to be sure, um, you know, I look at the New Yorker, I look at the Atlantic, I look at all of the the things that I think provide a lot more in-depth reporting mm-hmm. and, and reading of not just, you know, what's going on in Washington, but what's going on around the world. Uh, because I think what also we see is that so much of uh, our media is focused in on these very narrow, um, uh, you know, what is ever in the, whatever's in the news cycle that we lose sight of all of the other things that are most important. I mean, right now, I mean, I'm a father of two newborns and the world they're gonna live in, I mean, shoot, they may be fighting over water, Food, mm-hmm. paying for air. <laughs> I mean, it's it's they're dealing with some some serious. We're going to be dealing with some serious issues, and that is not at the center of the conversation. People are trying to put it there, uh, but it's not at the center point of the conversation where it needs to be. Um, and so, um, to your to answer your question, I think I try to pull in a lot of different things, but um, I try to hone in on things that one help me better understand my you know, reading of, of, of the current moment. Um, but then also I love seeing what other historians say because historians always have these interesting perspectives on what happened in the past. Again, past is, the, you know, past is often prologue. And so, you know, politicians will say the founding fathers this, the founding fathers that, the Civil War was fought over this and fought over that. And historians of the Civil War would say, uh, now really, this is what it was about. You know, when... Uh, Madison was recording what was going on in the, con- uh, the Continental Conventions. He noted this. Um, so what, what you're saying, politician who hasn't read anything, you have your staffers who may go on Google and look for something. No, I've studied this. I've written about it. This is what actually happens. And so, um, you know, I have a lot of historians in my Twitter feed, too. So. Do you guys get together? Do historians get together and talk about history <laughs> and how wrong it is and who said what? And do you... Well, I mean, you have your conventions, your yeah. your conferences um, uh, that individuals go to, and then just as friends, I think whenever we have the opportunity to sit down and talk, we do, we do that. 
Um, in my department, some of my uh, colleagues, we will sit down and when I'm supposed to be on the road ahead at home, we're talking for about 45 minutes about the latest thing. Again, to um, try to winnow through it ourselves because, I mean, so much of what we're dealing with is, you know, so much of what's going on now is kind of new. Um, but then when we reflect on history and we note just how jacked up things were uh, in the 1950s, I mean, we, we think that politicians making threats to their colleagues now is a new thing. Um, but some historians are looking at what was going on in Congress in the 1800s. We forget that the, the years and months before the Civil War, it was hostile. You also had duels where people were, you know, I meet you out back, I meet you here. Mm -hmm. um, and you had an opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to step up or I'm going to fall back because I know this person is good with his. And so... Um, it's, you know, the, the, the kind of dialogue and discourse that we're hearing now, it really isn't new. Um, and if anything, um, you know, folks aren't just dealing. Whereas, say, it took a while for things to kind of get to the public. You may have a news reporter who wrote something and it may have appeared in Harper's in like 1860, but that took a while to get out to Ohio. The difference now is that we have instantaneous information. Mm -hmm. And so if something happens in those chambers, it's going to be tweeted out by somebody, it's going to, and it's going to go out like wildfire. And the implications of those of the, this kind of discourse, yeah, I think, is a lot more, um, it, ha it can have a lot more um, consequence than it may have, say, in the um, 1860s. What do you think of that? Do you think we're, is, is this the fall of Rome? Is this the end of the empire? Have we, have we filled our cycle? Um, from a historian's perspective, mm -hmm. um, I would say the parallels are there. Um, one of the things that we saw with Rome, um, one was the devaluing of their currency, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we know that the dollar is not as competitive as it was or compared to, say, the euro and other forms of currency. And so there's that parallel. Um, we see in the Roman Empire, uh, Roman citizens, uh, they're not participating in the military as much. And so we see a decline in uh, the military. And so the Romans have to pull in mercenaries, people that aren't citizens, mm -hmm. who have different values, who aren't, you know, you know, have different understanding of the world. Uh, and, you know that undermines some certain social norms and the ways in which they engage foreigners and others as they're going out and even policing themselves, right? Because mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, the Roman military was dispatched to take care of internal strife too. Uh, but if, you know, you have people who are working, fighting for money and not for the greater glory of Rome, um, the impact can, uh, they, they're they not invested in taking care of each other in the ways in which previous generations of, say, Roman soldiers were. Um, and then you had, and, and I'm very careful to say this, mm -hmm. um, but you also had Romans encountering other groups of people as well, um, and this constant warfare that was going on. Um, I think what separates our time from there is that I think the thing that is undermining the U.S., those factors, are, some of the same factors are there. But I, the one thing I'm noting is 
the the uh, impact of say corporations mm-hmm. and their ability to um, blur the distinctions between nations, and so and in certain ways connect create these connections to other places that one does damage to those places. And whether we're talking about going to parts of Taiwan, or going to parts of South America, Southeast Asia, and not doing things to take care of the workers there. But it's also impacting things here because folks here they're out of jobs, um, they're not in, they're you know they're not working and therefore that dollar is not circulating through their community, and so, um, you know, part of me because I'm living through it, I don't want to say we're living we're going through the downturn of empire, mm. but in a lot of ways I see our influence waning, um, and. I'm thinking about it now because, you know, it's, it's kind of in stark relief with Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Like all of the stuff is just like glaring. I'm trying to think if through the Obama presidency and through the Bush eight years and even through the Clinton years, did we see that decline? And let me step back from foreign policy and what's going on with other people. Uh-huh. I think we have to go back to the 70s and 80s to really get to, like, why we're seeing this decline. And it's manifesting itself now. Um, Because as much as we can point to, say, China ascending and becoming a dominant dominant economic force and uh, the Russians are, uh, you know, infiltrating our elections, none of the things that... Russia did would have been uh, wouldn't have had a major impact in terms of disinformation if we solved the problems of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, right? Like when you know the thing that people keep forgetting, and members of the left, uh, Alexander Ocasio Cortez and others keep saying, guess what? Back in the 50s, the wealth the wealthiest of wealthy Americans, um, a certain percentage of the income was being taxed at 87 and 70 percent. And so, yeah, we're, they were paying so many taxes. Taxes are terrible. Well, guess what? In 1949, you had the Housing Act, mm-hmm. the Housing Act of 1949. During that period of time when there was significant revenues going into American coffers, which allowed for us to pay for the subsidization of the suburbs. The fact that you have suburban housing for what was, you know, for majority white Americans, the fact that you had a GI bill that allowed American GIs to come back to pay for those homes and also to go to college was because of those tax dollars. The Housing Act of 49 also had another stipulation which allowed for the building of public housing, not to the benefit of African Americans, unfortunately, because in a lot of ways it warehoused us, but it did give cities the opportunities to clear out slums. Mm -hmm. Again, federal tax dollars were being used to clear out old and decrepit neighborhoods that weren't giving any kind of return to private capital. And once you get rid of all of that, you know, certain sections of a city, now you can build up new high-rise gleaming towers in their place that businesses are now, you know, they're getting their tax breaks and all those other things and making a lot of profits. And the people that live in the suburbs can now travel to the inner city and work in those companies. All of those things came about partly because of the significant amount of tax dollars that were going that were being funneled in because we were taxing people at, at great rates. Um, hell, you can't drive on a highway now, if not for the Highway Act of 56, which again came from federal tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we talk about, you know, <laughs> we need to build infrastructure, what are we, we going to build it with? Yep. Are we going to continuously go into debt? Which we're, what we're doing, or are we going to say, you know what, let's make investments? And, uh, 
you know, the, the, the fall of America, I mean, what really happened with Rome wasn't because of external forces, it was internal forces, right? Um, when you starve the people that are responsible for the movement and the flow and, and the, you know, working for your empire, it can only crumble. And that's what we're seeing now. I mean, it, it's, it's just mind-boggling how some people say, you know, we need to get rid of these, you know, Social Security needs to be privatized. Well, certain people can make money off of it where the, those of us that work so hard to put into it, you know, that money's going to disappear. God forbid something happens with the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the decline of America will be because, you know, the ruling class, and that's a problematic term for some people, but, I mean, I think it's very apropos. The ruling class wants to maintain its power at the expense of all Americans. And so, and this has been like a, a certain turn in my thinking uh, and even my scholarship as of late, in that it's not just a matter of racism that we're dealing with now, right? It's like white supremacy is killing white people. Um, and, and folks just don't know that. They, you know, it's the, we got to keep those people out of our country, build a wall and all those different things. But when you're spending money to build a wall but not spending money on opioid treatment, you know, you know, the life expectancy for white men has gone down mm -hmm. in the last few years. Part of that has to do with the opioid crisis. And there has not been any major investments in that, right, in addressing that larger issue. Why? Because we have certain pharmaceutical companies that were responsible for starting it in the first place. And only now are people coming around to say, we need to hold them accountable. Um, and so... <laughs> the war is on the plebeians. Yes. <laughs> You know, we are the ones that are working every day to keep the dollar circulating. You know, uh, let the dollar circulate, let the dollar circulate. I mean, if not for us, you know, who, who are buying the tickets to go to the big, to the games? Mm -hmm. Who are buying the clothes at Target and Walmart? It, it, it's the working class, it's the middle class, the shrinking middle class. And so if America ever declines and falls, and I mean... And, and I'm hesitant to even use those kinds of terms because I think there's mm -hmm. certain ebbs and flows. Yep. You know, American dominance in the world, I think, is waning. Yeah. Part of that is because you're not supporting the people that allowed it to grow in the first place. You're not investing in the future. So young children, your kids, my kids, all of our kids, who will be the ones who will discover, make a new discovery or expand upon current technologies to make all our lives better, they're not getting the stable education that they need to do that work. Yep. Um, and, and the reason why it's not happening is because you have old white men who want to keep money for themselves and their children and grandchildren, um, but are, you know, cutting the ground on, from under all of us. And, and I think that is where we're going to see the fall or the decline of the empire. Yeah. How do we fix it? <laughs> Um, I, I think, you know, we, we are seeing certain aspects of it now. Um, right now we have arguably the most diverse Congress that we've seen, at least in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and it's not Amazing. just... And it's not just the, the presence of diversity, but they actually care and are interested in solving issues that impact the all of us. They're woke work. Yes. Yes. <laughs> They're woke working. They are, stay, they are constantly woke. I wonder yeah. what, like, what, how much sleep do they actually get? They don't because you know what? They stay awake through stuff that most of the other Congress don't even stay awake. Like you check their faces and they're like taking notes. They're like, we're here. I'm like, whoa, everybody else is sleeping. They're woke work. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think 
one of the, and there are a whole bunch of, I think, solutions. Um, and I don't know if I can pin down like one or a few things. Um, I think one of the major things that we have to do is to, um, and I don't want to be too abstract about it, but I think this is ways of getting at it. Mm-hmm. I think we have to rethink what it is to be human. Um, I think at a certain level, we've created this idea that we are qualitatively different and that we don't have common needs. And so, you know, this is where white supremacy has kind of been very effective in like screwing all of us up and that certain people feel privileged enough that they don't care about the truth of other people's lives. What's most important is we're going to build a wall that even though I live in South Dakota, so far from the Mexican border that I have no investment in. I, I really I really don't care what happens at the border, but because somebody says it's so, I, we need to build it. Rather than what is happening here in my, in my immediate community and is the person who is calling for their wall doing something for my, my community? And no, it's not the case, right? Yeah. Um, and so in these weird ways, I think we have to become hyper-local and that we have to really look at what is most immediately impacting us. And I think that's where this Congress is like good, right? Because they're supposed to represent the particular needs of their constituents. And there has to be the political will to do those things to take care of those people. I mean, we're one American people, but we're so diverse in our array of needs that we need to address the particular ones and make the investments and not put up roadblocks to allow people to do that kind of work to make their communities successful. And so if we need to do things to change our public school system in the inner cities, it's not just a matter of funding the schools. We need to do a better job at giving parents a wage where they can actually pay for healthy food. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to pay parents enough where they don't have to work 70 and 80 hours so they're not spending quality time with their children to help cultivate a solid relationship with their children where they can actually pass down family norms to their children. Uh, where they can actually go and spend time with their children in public spaces and do the things that build relationships with their families. There has to be a holistic investment in people um, that we're not seeing now. Um, and it I don't know if you know $15 an hour will solve everything. It's a step in the right direction, to be sure, uh, but there has to be more. Um, we have to fund public schools so they become the repository for knowledge, but also the arts uh, in ways that we haven't seen in generations. I mean, if you think about it, just in terms of, you know, the history of music, you know, where did Cool and the Gang, the guitar player, learn to play? School. Mm-hmm. Where did the horn section and Earth, Wind, and Fire learn? School, church. Like, they, the places that, you know, we, we basically decided we we're going to handicap were the places that cultivated the arts that we love and look back on and have a good time with but we're not investing in it. We haven't invested it in any years. And so um, we have to really invest in people in ways that we haven't. Not corporations. Corporations aren't people. No. Um, I, I think, you know, that's been the problem. Uh, we've privileged private capital over people. And, and I guess I get a little weary of, especially now, it's, <laughs> I feel like we're in the, 60, the 50s and 60s again where you know, to call somebody a socialist is like calling them a bad word. And it's like, if you strip away socialist, capitalist, communist, you strip away all of that, and you just look at what each of those ideologies believe and think, or what they suggest we should do for people, 
I think people, by and large, would actually say, you know what, there are certain things about capitalism that are very problematic. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things about socialism that are actually pretty good. As a matter of fact, guess what? We have those kinds of systems if you use your public library, if you use your public transit system. Guess what? If you're public school, if you, we're so, I mean, if you buy milk. (laughs) <laughs> Regulation. That's not the price of milk. Mm-hmm. It's it's social. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, that that pothole that was filled in last week, socialism. That's mm-hmm. government using dollars to do the things necessary to keep the co- the country moving. Um, and so, uh, while the the terms are convenient, I think if we can um, take away our gut reaction to certain terms, capitalism, all those kinds of things, I think that's a step in the direct uh, uh, the right direction as well. Um, you know, I'm a historian, and so my job is to to, to look back on the past to uh, unearth things that people may have forgotten, which will hopefully help us better understand who we are today. That's our show for today, but the conversation isn't over. Join us next week for a Q and A turned history lesson with the good Dr. Johnson. Be sure to subscribe at thebrownceo.com to get fresh episodes as soon as they drop. Continue the conversation at home and with all of us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Brown CEO. Thank you to our episode sponsor, The Brown Crayon Project, and our family at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio.